Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. For advisors dealing with wealth management clients, cybersecurity is a necessary conversation. The wealthy are clamoring for digital protection. Advice on the defense against social media attacks, the selling of information on the dark web, online security breaches, and asset theft are a part of the advice that most wealth management clients have come to expect from their advisors. How do you get your arms around this high-stakes discussion? Today, I spoke with Tommy Ragsdale to find out more. Tommy is an early team member at 360 Privacy, a Nashville-based cybersecurity firm specializing in digital protection for high-profile individuals, family offices, and executives. He joined in February of 2021 after working in healthcare technology for four years. Prior to that, Tommy flew fighter jets in the United States Marine Corps. Tommy served as a weapons and tactics expert, a flight instructor, and led maintenance teams in combat. He's on the literal front lines of the digital security war that clients are fighting every day, whether they know it or not. Welcome aboard, Tommy. Thanks. It's great to be here, Fraser. Happy to talk about what we do. Terrific. Well, cybersecurity, the threats on the internet, cyber warfare, heists, ransomware, all these crazy buzzwords are now becoming uh, a significant threat to wealthy families, much more so than maybe five or 10 years ago. Attacks on data, pernicious use of data, et cetera. Tell us a little bit about the firm and how it sort of identified this problem and, and how you sprung up to address this need. Yeah, that's a really great story. And to be honest, you know, I try to stay away from the term cybersecurity because what we do is while related, it's much more personal to our clients. So the company started about three years ago when Ronnie Dunn, one of the singers from Brooks and Dunn, had a cyber stalking case. His email accounts, his bank accounts, his Verizon accounts, social medias had all been compromised. And his group was kind of in a tough spot trying to deal with it. The local police department, it was beyond their scope of expertise. But it was too small of an issue for the FBI to care about. And traditional cybersecurity firms weren't able to really pin down what the cause was. My founder got involved after they felt like they'd run through all their resources and really narrowed the problem down to a single bad actor who is leveraging the data brokerage world. And I'm happy to talk a lot more about what that looks like, was leveraging that to exploit personally identifiable information about Ronnie and his family to create havoc in the digital and the physical world for him. Once that was identified, my my founder had a background in in cyber threat in the Green Berets, Army Green Berets, and saw there was a real need, a real vulnerability for high profile, high net worth individuals and families, and came up with the initial iteration of our services to help mitigate that risk for Ronnie and his family. So someone breaks into, it doesn't have to be a famous person, it can be someone with just general, lots of information or maybe lots of assets somewhere. Take us through what happens when that data breach happens and that data brokerage world that you were talking about. Yeah. So we talk about two different things. There's hacking, which is you know compromising someone's or a company's cloud environment or their customer list or things like that. Then there's exploitation, where a bad actor is leveraging 
data or other knowledge or intelligence to easily get into a individual's, a family's, or, or a business's vulnerable areas. What we see often happen is the proliferation of personal data for you, for me, for high net worth and high profile people is leveraged on a very frequent basis to get into these environments. So they're going to take the home addresses, the phone numbers, the social security numbers, and do whatever they can from a password and username perspective or from a security questions perspective. Once they're in that environment, they can kind of do whatever they want. And it's very rare that the victimized entity is even going to know that they're there because it's not like they're breaking down the door. Right. You hear about things like malware and so on. How sophisticated does this get when people leave their laptops unattended or use bad internet connections where other people can be lurking and then all of a sudden some piece of a virus is dropped into a person's network and then transmitting information back to those bad actors? It's a really big problem. And I'll, I'll give you a little bit of snippet from just last week. My team and I were down in Miami Beach. We were at the Bitcoin 2022 conference, which is about 30,000 people, you know, evangelists and advocates for Bitcoin and by extension, digital privacy. And the conference had an open public Wi-Fi. And my guess is probably 80% of the attendees are on that open public Wi-Fi that they know nothing about. Anybody else on that network is able to easily access their devices, whether it's their smartphone or their laptop. They're able to put anything that they want onto those devices because it's an unsecured network. And yes, it happens at big conferences, but the same thing also happens when my clients, your clients, people you advise go to the airport or go to the mall or things like that. The other thing that we see is the vulnerability of people's devices through Bluetooth. So if I'm walking around with my Bluetooth on in a highly populated area, particularly for you up in New York City where it's high density, there are bad actors walking around with what they, we call sniffers that are looking for that sort of stuff. And as soon as they find it, they're able to connect and access it. So we talk a lot to our clients about how not to be exposed in those types of environments and areas just because you're carrying around a smartphone in your pocket. So talk about people walking around with their data on their own devices. The concept of pools of information, whether it's Verizon or the credit reporting bureaus, et cetera. What happens on that front when you hear about a breach and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, your password is out, that our security hygiene is probably not the best all the time. And so that password leads to other passwords within your own data ecosystem. When people hear about a data breach at one of the major pools of information, what should they be thinking about? Well, the first thing they should be thinking about is now their username and password is broadly distributed. Their password in that breach is not encrypted. It is almost with certainty in plain text, and anybody's going to be able to use it and see it and then, and then leverage it. So step one, if you find out that you have a certain breach, you are part of the target hack, or like you said, one of the other ones, immediately go change that password. But any other login credentials that uses the same thing, go, go change that. Now, what we do with our clients, because we're a, we're a high-touch, white-glove type of service, is we set them up with password managers. We give them tools to circumvent the human weakness of this all. That's what bad actors are looking for, is to exploit the humanness of what we do, whether it's repeating usage of passwords or using passwords that are easily identifiable to us and our birthdays and our family's birthdays and things like that. 
we're going to go ahead and try and circumvent that as much as possible. So one of the things that the thought around data breaches and people in basements in Bulgaria running around attacking different networks, different people, et cetera, and then taking that information and either exploiting it or otherwise setting up you know, some sort of point of vulnerability with these families via the dark web and other sort of venues, what does that look like exactly? And when you're dealing with clients, how do you educate them without driving them into panic? So with respect to who the bad actors are, let's talk about that for just a second. You mentioned Bulgaria. You know, in general, we do see a lot of activity out of Eastern Europe, Russia, Korea, those types of things. If we look back over the last 24 to 36 months, that bad actor pool has increased significantly. Why? Because most of us have been in lockdown due to COVID constraints. And a lot of people have sat in front of computers looking at and for data to either just play around with or to exploit. So that bad actor pool has expanded significantly. Now with our more recent experiences in Eastern Europe, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has significantly moved the needle on bad actors looking for exploitation of Western targets. It's happened because sanctions on the Russian state and on Russian nationals has tightened the financial screws, dried up their liquidity, And we've seen, we predicted and then have seen it it come out that Russian nationals, particularly oligarchs, are financing hacking syndicates to target these people using publicly accessible data pools. You mentioned the dark web. Yes, that's often where a lot of this stuff starts. We find the biggest vulnerability for our clients is on the open web. They don't believe it until I show them their social security number on the open web and I show it being sold over and over again because in our country, it's completely legal and the consumer protection on the privacy side is virtually nil. So that's where we really provide the most value to our clients. So even taking a step back, maybe define the dark web for us versus the open web, which you know, there's a lot of myth and mystery around what that looks like and you know, sort of a parallel universe. How do you distinguish between the two? You know, the way I define it for the people I talk to or my clients, and it might be a little bit differently than the way some of my technical team would, but the way that I define it is you hear about, you know, the open web is what we all generally operate on using browsers like Google Chrome and Microsoft Edge and Firefox and things like that. If I'm going to operate in the dark web, I'm going to have to use a different set of tools. It's a similar browser, but it's it works on different protocols. I've got to have that first. The other way that we define it is things that are not indexed by Google, websites or other search engines for that matter, websites, chat rooms, marketplaces that are not indexed by those by those search engines. That technically is called the deep web and the dark web is a portion of the deep web where nefarious actors and bad things are happening, whether it's selling illegal things or people or whatever. And we see many of the breaches start there. Because that's an easy place for a bad actor who has compromised a data set from a victim to sell it and to be able to do so with anonymity. But at the high level, I say websites and marketplaces that are not indexed by the search engines, and you need a special set of tools to access new special sets of browsers. 
So one of my pet theories is that the 9-11 of cybersecurity hasn't happened, where there's been some major attack and a, a big systemic bank or organization hasn't been shut down. What does that look like at your end? How do you think about it? Would you say that there have been breaches that have been systemically important or systemically damaging yet? You know, I think to the level, particularly with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there's been a lot of discussion about a state-sponsored actor taking down significant portions of infrastructure. I would agree that has not happened yet. But if you talk to some of the corporate entities who have been have suffered significant attacks, so whether that's in healthcare or that's in the colonial pipeline attack, to those organizations, they've been significant enough. And some of them have been able to mitigate the risk so that it did not spill over into what it sounds like you would define as that 9-11 style of attack. So a little bit of a dancing around the issue and that it kind of depends on who you are as to how big of an issue it's been. But those types of big attacks have happened. They don't always get put out there publicly from a reputational issue, from a, you know, just a security posture perspective. They don't always get talked about. So let's talk about your process when a client comes to you. And so maybe maybe we'll take it from two different angles. Let's say someone is being proactive and saying, you know what, I got kids, they're on Instagram accounts, I've got lots of holdings, I'm worried about being hacked, I know that I'm probably not very good about keeping things secure. What's your process for that type of client? Sure. So that that type of person sounds like one of our concierge types of clients. I mean, we're talking, you know, high net worth, probably more ultra high net worth maybe even multi-generational. The first thing we're going to do with that client is once we enroll them into our concierge service, we're going to delete all of their public facing profiles. So we delete today from somewhere north of 370 different data brokers. That's a lot of risk area for our clients. Those data brokers are making available their real addresses, real phone numbers, real email addresses, social security numbers, VIN numbers, business interests, et cetera, et cetera. We go ahead and knock that down within the first 72 hours of our our clients enrolling. And then we scan for its repopulation on a daily basis. If we aren't doing that on a daily basis for our clients, they have gaps and those gaps inevitably get exploited. So we do that for the client, everyone who falls under that umbrella. Additionally, at the same time, we put them into our dark web monitoring service, which is an ongoing service that's looking for personally identifiable information that's compromised on the dark web. It's looking for credentials being compromised in the dark web, and it's also being or looking for personal threats to our clients. So someone who has a high profile, maybe an athlete, entertainer, politician, international business person might fall subject to that kind of threats to physical well-being, and we're scanning for that on a continual basis. And then the real value that our, our concierge level clients feel is when I send one of my special projects team members to that client's home. And that person is most likely a former NSA or former CIA um, veteran and is bringing that sort of skill set to the home to say, all right, we're going to help harden you as a target. We're going to harden your devices, harden your networks, et cetera. We're also going to teach you how not to be so leaky with your information or, you know, your credentials. So it's trying to make that person the most hardened target they possibly can be. And then they've got that person's direct cell phone number. For any issue that they have, 24-7, call them. You know, they've they've been called by someone who says they're from Apple support and they want them to do something. No, they're not from Apple support. They're trying to compromise you. Call us. 
and we'll help you walk through that. If it really is legitimate, we'll help be your mouthpiece for that. You know, that is the real level of high touch that our special projects team brings to the client there. So sort of a division or a subset of that client that's dealing with the concierge, I'm sure you you kind of have, my guess is sort of two types. You have the ones who go full privacy. They're like, okay, I, I want to erect whatever walls I have. Tell me what I do to just wall myself off from any sort of threat. And then you have maybe the high profile people who need to use the internet, need to be public as part of their larger, either their job or you know, Instagram or whatever they do, that's just not realistic to turn those things off. How do you think about that when you advise those two types of people? You've hit the nail on the head and we do have clients across that spectrum. So I may have a multi-generational family office that's made their money in very traditional businesses and they're completely okay with being as off the grid as we can make them. And I've also got a 24-year-old you know, NFL All-Pro who's on his second contract and he's trying to build a brand. For us, all of our clients are a balance between privacy and functionality. I got two cups. I've got a certain amount of water. I'm going to put find that right balance for that client. So the one who is building his brand on Instagram or other platform, we're just going to advise him on, on how not to be so exposed there. For instance, when you're shooting your Instagram videos or reels or, or whatever the platform calls it, don't do it in your front yard. Don't do it where your address is clearly visible and the street sign right out in front of your house is visible. Do it in your backyard because it looks like everybody else's backyard, except it may have a pool or something really nice that I don't have, but be more thoughtful about these kinds of things. You know, what, what devices should you do this on? How should you be interacting with people on direct messages? All of those things are tactics and techniques that my team brings to those people that is a certain level of awareness. It takes a certain level of practice as well to get used to, but it is all about the balance. There's no question about it. For the family office that you know, it's completely okay with being off the grid. When we get introduced to those types of people, oftentimes they say, well, we don't have a social media presence. We're not worried about our, about our exposure. We understand that perspective. The way the data brokerage ecosystem doesn't care. It works by buying and selling your, your information from other sources. So as low of a profile as a family or an individual might have on the social media, they're still exposed through data brokerage and the value and data deletion is is very high. Well, one of the things too, one of my friends here in New York who's sort of an IT expert, he scolded me because I had a picture of my keys on Twitter. And he's like, well, don't do that because those can be copied and that's a real thing. Another example was Kim Kardashian back in Paris when she was showing off all her different jewels and it became very easy to track her and find out where she stayed and that caused a robbery. So what you were describing is a very real thing in terms of having good prudence around what you're doing and making sure that you know, you're not giving out too much information that can't be shielded or changed or, or otherwise later on. That's right. And we always tell our clients, take and post pictures of your vacation, but don't do it until you get back. The smart device really encourages us to broadcast what we're doing at all times, but that's just not good security or digital hygiene. Don't take a picture of your aircraft's tail number. You know, when you're getting on your private jet, there are just a lot of techniques that we just, people generally don't think about that can create real vulnerabilities for them. Because if they, if someone does that, oh, so-and-so with 20 million followers of which I'm one, I'm bad actor X, Y, Z, oh, they're gone. 
well, I'm going to go to the data brokerage uh, pages. I'm going to find out where their property is. I'm going to go there now. I mean, there's a lot of hygiene stuff that can just be tidied up just by talking through it with, with some experts. Let's go to the second type of client, the one who's been hit. Maybe they've had a denial of service at their business or someone has gotten their information and is in some way extorting them either through, you know, your Instagram's been taken away or we're going to do something. And if you don't pay us $5,000 in Bitcoin, something bad's going to happen either to your digital ecosystem or something physical. What happens at that point when the, when the cat's out of the bag? You know, and to be honest, and and we're transparent with anybody we talk to, once that happens, it's really hard to get stuff back. Now, what you can do is is prepare yourself for the next time because there will be a next time. When it comes to a business, we do work with enterprises. Generally, our work with enterprises is around removing PII for a C-suite or a C-suite in the board. So I'm not very much involved if if a company gets hacked although we can make kind of a general contractor type of recommendation for the type of service that they need. But you're right. Most people are reactive in this case. It's like with insurance or anything else. Humans just generally don't want to take that proactive step. With an individual, we can certainly help there with, okay, now we've been compromised. How do we create our new digital footprint? How do we curate that? We've got partners in that space that are really, really good at it and taking that next step forward, but it's a mess. And that's why doing it preemptively is is so valuable for the high profile client, but also for the high net worth individual and ultra high net worth family. How do you intersect with law enforcement if it comes to that? You know, the, the best way for us to do it, particularly with, let's use the example of dark web threats to physical well-being, is to have regular contact with, let's say a family's physical security company, maybe executive protection, or with the the law enforcement in that jurisdiction, we generally take that intelligence, hand it over and kind of let them run with it. Because once you get there, it's outside of our scope, but we don't want to keep that intelligence from the people who need to know it. We are really great partners with executive protection. I've got a lot of partnerships there, executive protection across the country, many that have multinational footprints. Early on, it was kind of an ad hoc thing where they would add our services. Now they bake it straight into their initial proposals with their clients because they now understand the risk their clients face from data exposure. Once they understand it, it's incumbent upon them to address it and mitigate it. So it just makes a lot of sense. You talked a little bit about hardening someone's devices or their sort of electronics that they're using. I always sort of remember some sort of funny story about Mark Zuckerberg putting a piece of tape over the cameras of his laptops so that people couldn't get into his laptop and see him doing things or otherwise track his movements. What happens on that front? Either what are some of the tips or the tricks of the trade or what's some of the process around that when you are getting at the device level and the hardware level? So I'll give you a couple of examples. So one would be that one that everybody's familiar with, right? Carrying around a a smartphone. We walk our clients through the process by which they can stop data just flowing out there. And what I mean by that is even Apple with the iPhone bills itself as as a privacy conscious device and operating system. And they are much better than their competitors. But even they are tracking the vast majority of everyone's movements down to the second. What are they doing with that data? They're often just selling it back to people who want to leverage it for marketing purposes. When we show clients what it looks like, they're really unnerved and we help them correct those settings. Now, with 
iOS updates, other app updates, that's an opportunity for those things to switch back into data leakage modes. So we have to help coach our clients to keep going back and checking to make sure that's good. On another example, this kind of goes into that camera world. The vast majority of our clients and probably the people that are listening to this podcast and that you advise have home security systems, whether they're you know, the Arlo cameras or something more robust than just off the shelf. Many of those, as soon as they're connected to and installed in the network, are opening up ports, ports that are channeling data out. And a lot of them can easily be accessed from any browser in the world to see what's going on on that camera. That's also incredibly unnerving for our clients. So when we harden networks, for instance, we're going into the client's networks, their routers and and other access points to say, what ports have been opened by hardware that's been added to this? Let's close it so that it's still functional, but not just pouring data out the backside. So those those things run the gamut. Yeah, I mean, I always hear the story, oh, my refrigerator is connected to the internet. And I'm like, I, why would you want that? And I'm sure, you know, as modern houses are being built and everything is more data dependent, the points of vulnerability increase almost exponentially. That's right. That's exactly right. Exponentially is the exact right way to describe it. Okay, so we've panicked our listeners into saying, okay, what am I doing? Am I in good shape? How does someone find out more about your firm? And what's the best way to locate you and find out if they need hardening or other sort of systems audits? Sure. So a little bit about the company. Again, the majority of our team is in Nashville, Tennessee. We do have a couple of people spread across the country. Our client base is all across the United States and some international. If you're local to Nashville, we're happy to to meet with you in person, but we often travel to wherever clients or prospects might be. We work to connect with our clients through a multitude of ways. You can come to us through our website, which is 360privacy.io. You can also reach out to any of us on LinkedIn directly, myself included. The other ways that we work with our clients or connect to them is through our channel partnerships. So we are on the family offices services list for UBS. Same for the JP Morgan private wealth team and are also in that process for a number of other MFOs like Bessemer Trust, First Republic, a handful of others, and can easily be accessed through those conduits. The fastest way is, is direct to us. So I'm happy to connect with people on LinkedIn that way or just direct email. And we can put it in the show notes, but it's tragsdale at 365c.io. Uh, it will be in the show notes as soon as we publish. Tommy, this is really helpful. And I encourage anybody that I talk to to really get a sense of of what their world looks like in the connected space these days, because it's far greater than you think. And and the vulnerabilities can be exploited. I still am just worried that there are bigger things out there that haven't happened yet. And it's a good good idea to intersect with people like you to find out exactly what the exposure is. It's certainly true that the majority of, of what we do is education because I don't think people fully grasp the way the data world works. And we probably do 50 to 100 what we call threat assessments almost every month to show people what they look like out there, because it's really an unknown until you sink your teeth into it. Terrific. Tommy, thanks for being on. It's been a pleasure. And I hope we can help as many of your clients and listeners as possible. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time 
on Wealth Actually. <laughs> 